Welcome to the second part of our short series on making change work. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. In part one, we looked at the various drivers for change. In this podcast, we'll be taking a more in-depth look at how our case study organisations have and are continuing to make change work for them. We'll be looking at the types of measures they took and the huge role of communication in the change process. We'll be hearing more from Vicky Wooderson at Gate Gourmet, Mandy Coulter at Heart of England NHS Trust and Valerie Ravenhill at Look Ahead later on. But first, a look at Xerox, a global organisation founded in 1906, traditionally known as makers of hardware like printers and photocopiers. In 2004, they created a new department called Xerox Global Services – Louise Fisher is their European Human Resources Director and she was brought in to drive the changes that were necessary to launch the newly formed division. That required a different organisation structure, different skills, different roles. So I was brought in in 2006 to create really an HR function um, for this new part of the business to help create HR strategies that were different from the traditional part of the business, looking at all kinds of things right from how do we pay people in this part of the business, how do we do it differently from the traditional part, to what are we actually looking for, what roles do we need in this organisation. So the whole gamut of HR practices we looked at. Tell me, how did you approach this very big and very complex project? I recognised that we needed different roles, different people. We probably about 50% of our head office in Europe is new recruits. So we have brought fresh blood into the organisation with like I had, an IT outsourcing or other outsourcing experience. So those people could hit the ground running and help shape what has now become global services globally. But Louise's new department was very different from the main organisation, with the need for a different set of skills, as well as working to different timescales. I have to say, I think that's one of the challenges that we face now, is that um, the traditional Xerox person may not suit what global services needs for the future. We deal with much more complex opportunities. For example, a bid that we won with the DWP uh, two years ago was the largest bid that the organisation had ever won. So we're doing things that traditional organisation hasn't done before and doing it in a different way. The traditional organisation was selling hardware, you book the revenue immediately, you book the profit immediately. Our contracts can last five, seven or ten years and you're not seeing the profit potentially four, five, seven or ten years in those contracts. So we were definitely doing things differently and the people who moved into that business, I think, could think longer term, could think differently to start with. Heart of England NHS Foundation Trust took over a poorly performing neighbouring hospital in Sutton Coalfield near Birmingham in 2007. The acquisition of Good Hope Hospital was one of the largest of its kind, combining to make a workforce of 10,000 and a budget of nearly half a billion pounds. Mandy Coulter, Director of HR and OD, was the one trying to bring together the people across two sites. It was a hearts and minds mission, as well as a case of major restructuring. I think there was a real nervousness at Good Hope um, about being taken over, uh, and a real nervousness that, um, you know, there would be an assumption that everything at Heart of England is great and everything at Good Hope is poor. And the one thing we quickly realised is that um, there were very talented people in there doing some very great things and, and they needed to be uh, released and, and have opportunity. Um, and we did that pretty quickly. And I think that sent out a good message. 
there were a lot of people at Heart of England who um, did really question why we were doing it, particularly when we got into uh, restructuring some key areas, um, some of the support functions, the management roles. That, that was tough for people because clearly we, they were feeling the change pretty significantly then. So we had to do some fairly intense stuff around those groups. That's why we also put our jobs unit um, support in place because um, those were the people that really needed a lot of one-to-one support um, to try and understand why it was happening but also obviously to to help them through it. Tell me a bit more about your jobs unit because it was remarkably successful wasn't it both in doing its job and in saving you money on redundancy? Um, Yes it was and You know, it was a very small team of three people, so it wasn't a grand fancy setup. Those people do work with us now um, and are very, very good people. And it was just a a simple concept around, uh, you know, if people are going through restructuring or having to apply for jobs, we knew we would have some redundancies. Um, What can we do to make sure that those people are are cared for and looked after and, and cherished? Uh, which is one of our values. Um, and we wanted to have dedicated people who would be part of the HR team and work with HR, but would have a slight, um, I, I guess, arm's length approach. Um, it, that left HR really free to focus on uh, supporting the managers who were having to implement the change um, and meant that the jobs unit had some real credibility with staff. And I think the fact that 600 people utilised that service um, said a lot about how credible they were actually and and as you've quite rightly said they saved the trust a lot of money um, and also helped us reduce the actual number of redundancies that we had to make. Indeed only six people out of 10,000 were made redundant. We were helped by the fact that we were in Good Hope early um, because it meant that we could start managing vacancies in those areas pretty rapidly uh, and we were doing that um, more than six months before the acquisition date so um, that made a big difference but also the jobs unit were very active in um, seeking alternative employment for those people who were potentially redundant and we did have a fair bit of redeployment around the organisation when other vacancies came up. Last month, we heard briefly from Valerie Ravenhill about the transformative change at Look Ahead, a charitable housing and care organisation. Despite being a voluntary organisation, they've had to adopt a more commercial approach towards their work, a big attitudinal change for a workforce driven there to do good and not in the habit of having to think commercially. Previously in the sector, the focus had been very much on support and care, which is what we do and we do really well. But the balance of moving towards sound professional business practices was now needed in this changing market. So that that was the need for the change. Valerie, remind me, what were the the key challenges facing you when you took this job on? We had in our organisation very, very capable managers, but their their drive, their passion, uh, they identified with supporting and caring for people. They would say to me, I didn't join this organisation to be concerned about commercial realities of running a business. So the challenge for me and my colleagues and and the management population was how we could drive through the change without destroying the social ethos. And I think at at that time there was a view that the two aren't a happy marriage. You can't have the one without the other. And I think what we've been able to achieve over the last four years is a, a demonstration that actually, yes, you can you were faced with these really exceptional challenges. You had people working within the organisation who didn't want to do it, resented having to do it. How did you start? 
it's always difficult with the start of a big change program like this. But I, I mean, my my vision for it was that we would achieve it within maybe three year time span, and the focus was going to be on uh, leadership capability within the organisation to support driving the change through. So we invested a lot of time in winning the hearts and minds, or attempting to win the hearts and minds of our of our managers. So we set up management programs that had a heavy emphasis on culture change, and we worked with them to enable them to, I guess, gain the confidence to actually start to talk about behaviour and how it needed to change in this new world um, if we were to survive. So there was the, there was the softer behavioural side to the development and the investment in our management population, but also the hardcore financial awareness, uh, commercial skills, customer relationship management, yeah, how did you tackle that? Because these are areas of expertise that were completely beyond their experience when these people you know, do a job which does not involve any of that sort of budgeting and customer service you're talking about. What did you actually teach them to do? How did you do it? Well, we worked with external consultants and we brought in people that already had a quite a strongly developed corporate social responsibility agenda of their own. So I think we wanted to work with people that could identify uh, with our organisation and our social conscience, but at the same time had the business skills. And I think a key success for us in terms of the programmes and what people get out of them, but also in driving the change forward is that we do involve our senior management in facilitating delivery alongside the external deliverers. How did your managers take to all this? I think I'd be lying if they if they all jumped on board saying, oh, yeah, that's great. And one of the things that I, I always say to people uh, it, through a change process is that negative feedback can be a, a positive indicator that shift is happening because I, I really think that people don't get outside their comfort zones unless they feel a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit afraid. So don't be, you know, don't be scared of negative feedback. Stick with it. Just because people don't like something doesn't mean it isn't right. And, and I constantly fed that message back and I think constant communication. We developed an internal uh, communication strategy to support the management development programs and to make sure that people were, were fed the right information in terms of why we needed to make these changes and what, what the milestones were um, along the way of the change. Did you lose people? Did some people just think, this is not for me, I'm going elsewhere? I think... I don't believe that we lost people as a direct result of the changes that we were making. Uh, I, think we, I mean, we do have, we still have turnover. We do have turnover. We still are, uh, in my view, although we've achieved a lot of success on the way, um, working towards being fully excellent organisation and we're just about to launch an apprenticeship scheme. So we're constantly looking for ways to keep ahead of the game in the, in the sector. Setting up an internal communication system like Valerie did might not be rocket science, but it is a crucial step. This was also true at the heart of England NHS Trust, where they were merging two big hospitals. I put this to Mandy Coulter. It was all about communication, wasn't it? And I think the, the, the thing we need to draw out of this, your particular case study is the many ways in which you created good comms. I think that's absolutely right. You can never communicate enough. And for us, it was about trying to find ways of communicating with different people in different ways, um, but not just sending out newsletters or emails, those things we did do, 
but very much do the face-to-face -face work with people. Um, that's why we set up uh, leadership groups and training, which um, executives like myself were very much involved in and sponsored and were present at. Um, but it's also why we ran sessions for several thousand people um, that the chief executive himself um, was at, every single one. Um, so that, again, we could just engage really closely with people on a one-to-one, a, -one, a group level, and just talk to them about what's worrying you, what's your concern, what are your questions? And you did a very brave thing. You did this this thing of publicising the change curve and telling them that they pro a lot of them weren't actually going to like this and where that process would take them. Tell me a bit about that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't think I thought it was brave at the time, actually. It, it just seemed like the right thing to do, in a sense. Well, it's telling people they're not going to be happy, though, isn't it? <laughs> I, guess, I guess it is, actually. I, yeah, when you think about it like that, it is. But they're not, are they? Uh, <laughs> and that was the reality. Um, no matter where they were coming from, uh, Good Hope, Heart of England, they were all going to go through it. So it seemed to me to be a bit of a no-brainer, really, to be upfront about that and clear. And So obviously you were trying to get a lot of people through this change curve as quickly but as, as sensitively as possible and you recruited change champions didn't you not all of them from the most obvious places um, no, I, no. Uh, yeah, yeah it, I think we just felt we needed people who um, would be out there selling the right message. Uh, we then backed that up with some of our other programmes, like our leadership programmes, our inspirers programmes. People say to me, what was the role of your inspirers? They didn't have a job description or a task to do. Um, we thought about that and then we thought, no, we just want to get these people together, give them a bit of an insight into why this is happening, give them some new skills, some new ways of thinking, and just let them go back out where they work and, and be inspirational, and that's enough. How did you tackle the really entrenched resistors? Because there always are some, aren't there? Um, yes, there always are. Um, various different ways, I think. Uh, you know, to a certain extent, you have to accept that they're there, but not put too much time and energy into it. Quite often, those people will eventually vote with their feet. It is important, though, not to write off every resistor to change. There are some people who've been genuinely quite badly hurt in the past and you can understand why they're cynical. Good Hope had had turnaround teams coming in, they'd not made a difference. You could understand why the clinicians would be very sceptical. I, I would be too um, in their shoes. So we had to work with that and recognise that everyone wasn't going to jump for joy on day one, it was going to take time. On stage at the CIPD HRD conference, Mandy told a story about a lesson she learnt about winning people over. I remember a guy that came to one of our sessions, frontline guy, worked in our estates department, and he was the grumpiest person you've ever seen. Walked in, sat down, arms folded, you know, said, well, I've come here to see what this chief executive's got to say, but frankly... You know, I'm sure he hasn't got much to say to me. Kind of thought at first, oh, well, you know, what can we do with him? But actually, we decided to spend a bit of time with him to find out why he was in the place that he was in. And it turned out it was nothing to do with this change process. Um, it was something to do with something that had happened to him several months before. And actually, because we started to listen to him, try and help him and support him, it did actually turn him around. And we ended up putting him on one of our Inspirers programmes which was a bit of a tricky choice because he could have been quite disruptive. But he came out of it a completely different person. And about six months later, we ran another session for our change champions. And he was sat there at a table with doctors, with other senior people. 
He was being constructive, he was engaged, he was involved, he was great. It just taught me a lesson that you shouldn't write everybody off. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. As Vicky Wooderson said earlier, if Gate Gourmet hadn't done something and fast, they'd probably have gone under. They had a thousand employees striking illegally, the decision was taken to sack them, they were losing millions of pounds a year, they were on their knees. There was complete disconnect between managers and employees. Communication hadn't been happening at all, but it had to start happening, and fast. It was really around setting up the the communication structures. It was around understanding what the employees actually felt about the situation. At the end of the day, they they work on the shop floor. They know exactly what goes on. They're probably the best people to go to for, for ideas and change. So there was a lot about communicating. As you say, there was a complete disconnect between the management and the staff. Just no communication whatsoever. It had always gone via the union and got rather mangled in the process. How did you tackle that? Because that needed to happen, didn't it? Because you had um, absenteeism running at 20% in some areas. Productivity was appalling. So there needed to be that conversation. How did you actually start that in an organisation where it just hadn't happened at all? Um, I think it was really about the realisation of managers that they they had to talk to the employees and actually that they had a right to talk to the employees as well um, and didn't have to go via the union to do it, but equally that the employees had to understand that their managers had a right to talk to them as well and and to manage the departments. You still had those big productivity issues, didn't you? But you involved the workforce in how things were going to change on that front, didn't you? I think probably the first thing was actually some of the managers going down onto the shop floor, which in in some cases was the first time that they might have actually done that, and actually setting up some working parties with the the employees who were actually working in that particular area. Initially, there there was still resistance, there was still distrust about why would we want to do it, Um, you know, surely it can't be any better. So it was about demonstrating to them the benefit that actually changing would provide to them, uh, getting them involved and coming up with the ideas and suggestions. And in some cases, we would actually trial several different ways of doing things for a period of time to give them the opportunity to see which one actually worked best. We're talking about a very short time frame here. The, the organisation went, or Gate Gourmet went from losing £27 million a year to breaking even, I think, the next year and into profit the year after, which is an extraordinary achievement, while you were in parallel bringing about these mindset changes throughout the workforce from management right down to the bottom. It is an astonishing thing to do in the time. But what remains to be done for you there, do you think? Um, I think if I was to explain the culture, I guess, of the organisation, I think we've moved from a very antagonistic industrial relations culture through a a more employee relations culture. And for us now, we're trying to move towards an employee engagement culture. So it really is about genuinely being able to say that our employees are truly engaged, not just that they understand the need for change, not just that they understand where the business is going, but that actually they feel proud and passionate to work for our organisation. And I, I truly believe we're getting there, but we're not there yet. And that's really what um, anything that we're doing now contributes towards that. So new reward and recognition schemes, um, the, the training that we're carrying out, being uh, fully inclusive of all our employees. Uh, we have made acquisitions within the group, so it's really about integrating them into the organisation as well. And, uh, and, and as I say, really actually becoming a real employer of choice that people say I'm proud to work for the business. 
Gate Gourmet is a global organisation, but the UK and Ireland is truly intrinsic to, to the, the whole group, really. And if we'd gone under, the whole thing really would have gone under. So I think that's why it's so important that we had to make these changes um, and then to actually enable the group to make 10 acquisitions and then to, to become so much stronger and much more diversified is, you know, it's, it is something to be pr- proud of. Meanwhile, at Look Ahead, business is going well. It seems to me that what you did in a nutshell, you also did a lot of things and achieved a lot of objectives. What you really did primarily was you took managers and you taught them to manage. I think we taught them business. We taught them to feel okay about saying that Look Ahead is a business uh, as well as uh, a charity that's supporting and caring for people. We are also a business, and the business side of what we do is as important as the support and the care side. And you can see from where we are today with the awards that we're winning and the new business growth that we're achieving that you know we are, we are now in a situation where they do feel comfortable and they do trust that actually there is that happy marriage. So how many years are we into this now? Well, 2003 was the change. I guess 2004, the end of 2003 was the change, 2004, so four years, four years into the change. And we're winning awards. We're a Sunday Times top 100 company. That's, for me, a success indicator that our staff still believe that Look Ahead makes a difference in the world. So we have not lost that true passion, which is at the heart of what we all do. Finally, I talked to Vanessa Robinson about whether HR as a whole is coming to terms with the need to be ready for change. Do you think that the HR profession has really taken the message about the need to change as a continuum, not just as a project-specific target? Do you think that really as a profession we've taken it on board? Well, it's interesting. Um, We've just completed a mini poll at the CIPD about the skills that um, people in HR think are essential for them to have, particularly in these times. And the top um, skill that they recognised was the need to effectively manage change. Now, okay, a number of organisations have been doing that. So I think we don't want to sort of think this is something totally new. But I guess the place that we're getting to is the fact that this isn't just an add-on at particular times. This is something sort of integral, if you like to the role that HR plays and it can't be something that people sort of pick up and and drop off Um, it's not a sort of static state if you like and then suddenly we need to change and then we can forget about it for another period and indeed not just something to talk about as a theoretical possibility because I know that the CIPD itself is very much taking this on board That's right. I mean, I think we're taking it on board probably um, in two ways. Firstly, we've um, recently done a big review um, of our whole profession map, which is very much around the sort of routes into membership and the qualifications. And I think if you look at those, um, they very much are recognising that the skill sets and the behaviours and the actions that people need to take to actually be effective in in HR are much wider than they used to be. And the ability to be agile, to be ready for change are absolutely core some of those both behaviours and also areas of competency and I don't think you'd have probably seen those certainly in the CIPD set of qualifications um, if you look back at the previous ones. That raises interesting questions about what being in HR will mean in the future doesn't it? I think it does and we are I mean sort of following on from that what we're actually doing is we've just embarked upon a new piece of research um, which tentatively we're calling next generation HR which is looking exactly at that I think we're recognizing the sort of skill sets the mindsets everything um, about what HR will look like in the future could be quite different and I think change is definitely one of those big challenges yes I think so (laughs)
That brings this two-part programme to a close and we hope both these podcasts have given you an insight into some of the different reasons for change and some of the challenges you might face in making change work. If you're interested in finding out more about organisational change, you'll find further information in the show notes accompanying this podcast. I hope you'll join me next month when I'll be closing our change season with a chat to Gary Hamill, who the Wall Street Journal recently ranked as the world's most influential business thinker and Fortune magazine has called the world's leading expert on business strategy. Don't miss it. Until then, goodbye. You've been listening to the CIPD podcast series.